Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to the Graceland Church Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus and love our neighbor for the good of the city. We welcome you guys to Graceland Church. It's a joy to have you in the house. If I don't know you yet, my name is Nathan Kola. I'm honored to be our lead pastor here. Uh, I'm not teaching tonight because one of my mentors and a close friend is in the house, uh, Pastor Gary Spell. If you were here this morning, you heard him. Uh, he has a profound gift of the ministry of the Word and of the Spirit. He's, uh, we've known each other for over 25 years. Uh, we met when I was just a young teenager. Um, he's invested in my life for decades, and for decades now, we've ministered in each other's worlds, and God has just continued to uh, cause it to be really fruitful. He is also a pastor of a church called Tapestry Church in Virginia Beach. He is the founder and director of the Institute uh, for Worship and the Arts, I don't know if I'm saying that right, at Regent University. He also uh, oversees all the music of the boardwalk in Virginia Beach, Virginia. It's my hometown where I grew up. He oversees the, the music there in the summers, and uh, he's a playwright and a, a worship leader. More than all that, he is a man with an incredible heart after God. It's just that simple. And he has a passion for Jesus and making disciples and sharing God's word. Has a beautiful wife and some kids, and they're not able to be with us, but they're home in Virginia Beach praying for us. Uh, welcome, Pastor Gary Spell. Come on up. Well, hi, Graceland. Thanks for saying hi back. I feel like we've come a long way together. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Um, love, love this place, and I'm so privileged to be able to be here and minister. So this morning, um, believe it or not, I really was trying to be conscious of time. I know it didn't seem that way at all. Um, but uh, I'll take a few minutes and do the normal sort of guest speaker intro and tell you a little bit about myself. I have um, a wife and two kids. We have a picture, I think, of our tribe. That's us. And um, the, the tall girl is my wife. And then, uh, and then so these are my two kids uh, in the next slide. That's from Halloween. Uh, that's Josiah on the right. He was Doc Brown from uh, Back to the Future, and my daughter is some kind of ladybug character from a book, apparently. Um, we can go to the next slide. So, um, so Judah is, uh, she is our little artist. She's super expressive. She doesn't walk anywhere. She dances everywhere. She sings most of what she says. She lives in a fantasy world, and she is a, a direct descendant of Narcissus. Um, she adores her face in the mirror. Um, Anytime she passes a mirror, she'll go, oh, hello, and start talking. And it's not, I'm not kidding. We have to cover the mirrors in our house when we have to get somewhere. Uh, Jen texted me this afternoon and said, hey, I have removed the mirror from her bedroom because when she goes to get ready for school, we just come in and she's standing in her underwear talking to herself in the mirror, just loves it. She's uh, flighty and angelic, and she is awesome. And uh, this is my son. Um, Josiah is his name. He, uh, he is seven and, um, uh, no, yes, he is seven and, uh, my daughter is eight and, um, uh, my daughter Judah is an angel and Josiah is a boy and he loves anything to do with sports. He's really, really smart. He loves math. And he secretly loves playing the piano, but he doesn't want to do it around me. 
and he doesn't, of course, doesn't want to hear anything from me about the piano. But uh, when when I'm not a, you know, a meet in the immediate area, he's always playing and going through my notes and all that sort of thing. So uh, so that's my family. Um, uh, yes, I I pastor Tapestry Church. It's a church plant in Virginia Beach, and the biggest practical joke the Lord ever played on anybody because I always said, whatever I do, I will never plant a church. I didn't want to be a senior pastor, and I had zero interest in church planting and really very little compassion for it, uh, except that that, uh, Nate and Jess planted a church in California, so that drew my attention a little bit, but nothing they went through inspired me to want to follow (laughs) that call. And... um, and then, the, you know, after I'd left my, my last ministry position, I thought I was getting out of ministry altogether. And after I was out for a few months, the Lord began to speak to us about planning a church, and neither Jen nor myself could believe it. It just seemed like, the, like a total practical joke. Um, and then everybody that I talked to about it was like, well, good luck. It's, it's, that's, it's hard. It's really hard. And um, it's going to be the toughest thing you ever loved. Get ready. It's brutal. It's, you know. And honestly, I have found none of that to be true. It's been a complete delight. Um, the privilege of, a, of my lifetime. I've, I have loved every moment. There hasn't been a, not a single second of regret or second guessing. I love those people so much. And um, just watching the growth over the last couple of years, I, I just... It's, uh, well, it's like, uh, here's, here's what I didn't realize. It's like fatherhood. You know, you're, you're watching the church grow from an infant to a young person. To, and, and as it grows, you feel this fatherly pride in them. And you get to observe what God is doing. Anyway, I just, I just love that very much. Um, I also, as, as Nathan mentioned, I have a company called GVI. It's a production company. And that's, I've had that for 25 or 30 years. And uh, it has a couple of... Uh, significant contracts to provide entertainment in different places. So, it, so I write and orchestrate and produce shows that then play on stages um, uh, at the oceanfront and, and some different places. And so, uh, so that's really fun. And, uh, and then finally, a couple of years ago, I got a phone call from a friend and mentor in my life, Dr. Pat Robertson. Um, Pat uh, was a guy that I connected with many years ago and during the days when he traveled and ministered, um, I traveled with him as his worship leader. And um, that was incredibly exciting. I got to travel all over the world with Pat, and, um, and it was a, a total honor and a delight. And so he called a couple of years ago and asked if I would come to the house and sit down with him. And, uh, and he said, uh, you know, brother, my, uh, the sun is setting for me, and I have uh, God called me to create a Christian TV network, and I did it. And he called me to create um, the world's largest relief agency, and I did it. And he called me to establish the Center, American Center for Law and Justice to fight on behalf of Christian causes, and I've done it. And then he called me to build a university to his glory, and I've done it. And at this point, I have one thing on my list that God's told me to do that I haven't done, and I want to do it before uh, I'm done. And that is, he told me that he wanted me to build 
the most influential music school in the world. And he told me that you are the guy to do it. And uh, now, Pat had talked to me about Regent University before, and I have always said no to anything to do with it uh, because the only time I've ever been in a college was once to use the bathroom. It's just not my thing. Um, and uh, so I just didn't have a heart for it. You know, it's really, it's remarkable to me that the Lord still is willing to use me at all. Uh, I am the most reluctant, uh, difficult follower he's ever had. Uh, everything he ever says to me, I tell him it's a bad idea. I'm not the guy. Just pick somebody else. And, um, uh, and I said, Pat, I, I just, uh, brother, I, I appreciate your confidence in me but I am not the guy. I know nothing about academia. I care nothing about academia. I have no qualifications to do this. To which he said, well, brother, God called me to start a TV network and I didn't own a TV set. (laughs) The Lord doesn't care what degree you have. Hallelujah. (laughs) So that's tough to argue with. I said, well, I just need some time to think this over. How much time do you need? I don't have much time left. I said, well, I need a few days. He said, brother, it's not that hard. Just say yes. I I just need to just say yes. Let's change the world. Say yes. So anyway, ultimately, I said yes. And uh, none of us knew that that would be sort of his last official act. He called over to the uh, provost of the university and said, (laughs) I'm sending you a guy with no degree to build the School of Music at Regent University. And so the board and the attorneys had to do some fast footwork to get me um, in. And then uh, very shortly after that, Dee Dee passed away. And, you know, as so often happens... um, Right after her funeral, Pat took a nosedive and uh, really just died of a broken heart. And so, um, and so now we are, we are walking out that call, and um, we've been building the infrastructure, putting together the curriculum, recruiting an inaugural class. And uh, so we'll roll out five new degrees this coming fall in the new um, Institute of Music and Worship at Regent. And uh, I have to tell you, I am developing a heart for education. As as I talk to these young people, as they send audition videos, um, I find myself just weeping over the potential, uh, the the privilege of shaping the next generation of worship leaders and and musicians. It's just seized me, so I'm really grateful for that. So that's a little bit about me. Um, Tonight, I want to begin by teaching you uh, what might be a a new Hebrew word for you. And uh, the Hebrew word is also the title of the message. It is kabod, K-A-B-O-D. Kabod directly translated uh, can mean either weight or glory. Most theologians think that it is a combination of the two. When we talk about kabod in scripture, it has to do with the weight of the glory of God. 
It has to do with his presence in a room that is overwhelming, that is compelling. It is the manifest presence of God. Now, this isn't to be confused with the omnipresence of God. We know that God, by nature, is everywhere, in all places, all the time. There's nowhere you can go and God not be there. So he's available, he's accessible anywhere. But from time to time, he will manifest in a place where everyone in the room feels the weight of his glory. Has anyone here ever experienced, ever in your life, the kabod of God, the weight of his glory? Exodus, uh, here are a couple of examples. Exodus 24, 15 through 17. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the kabod of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. And then... Um, I'm sorry, 17. To the Israelites, the kabod of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Here's another example from Exodus 29. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet with you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my kabod. The place will be consecrated by virtue of the presence of God. And then later on, we'll see how the presence of God literally moved from Mount Sinai. The kabod lifted and then moved over the tabernacle where he dwelt. God's presence in a place changes everything. When the the presence of God invades a room, nothing stays the same. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says this. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know this, that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. As, as, As the apostle Uh, John describes that great last day. He says that when we encounter the face-to-face presence of God, we will instantly be transformed because that's what his presence does. Right now, we see through a glass darkly, and to the degree we catch glimpses of who he is, we can experience transformation, but then we'll see face-to-face and we will be transformed because we will see him as he is. In many ways, so much of what we do in church is an effort to manufacture 
what would happen naturally if God showed up. Listen, if God falls in this room tonight, sin will automatically be called out. You won't need anybody up here to talk about sin in your life. You will become keenly aware, deeply convicted of areas of disobedience. If God manifests in this room, you will automatically be provoked to holiness. You will naturally be generous. No one will have to twist your arm. We will naturally care for others. We'll have a heart for people because God has a heart for people. And when he shows up in the room, his character transforms you into his image because you'll see him as he is. When God shows up, really shows up in a room, then we will naturally love what he loves and we will hate what he hates. One thing's for sure, we won't stay the same, not in the presence of God. In some very real sense, many of us are subsisting on memories of kabod that exist in our rearview mirror. I was, you know, I'm a, I'm a theater guy um, by trade. I, for the first 10 years of my uh, professional life, I, was, uh, I started off in musical theater as a pit musician, then a conductor, then a director, then a producer and a director, and then I was a resident artistic director. And there is way more, way more terrible theater than there is good theater in the world. But here's what, here's what it is. Those of us who love theater, and there are probably just one or two of you here. I, I know I'm in the minority. <laughs> but those of you who love theater, here's what it is. Along the way, you saw the real thing. You experienced something that really was transformative. And so you endure less than awesome because in it you see vestiges of awesome, what could be awesome, and you're waiting for the day when the next awesome thing really will impact you and change your life. Some of you are the same way with sports. You endure seeing terrible football games at high schools and colleges or uh, the Washington Commanders, right? Uh, because you have memories of great football. And terrible football, terrible though it is, gives you joy as you recall great football. <laughs> By the way, I'll just mention this, I just because I feel like it bears mentioning. Kabod does not translate on live stream. Can't get that. You can hear the music, and I don't know if you guys do post-production, but you probably get pretty good music. Um, you can get the sermon, uh, but if the presence of God falls in the room, you'll miss it watching at home. Um, and so at Tapestry, we're just, we're just chasing the presence of God. We, don't, we, we want people to miss it if they're not in the room. Kabod is our objective. At every turn, we want 
a God encounter. Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea, across the desert, to the foot of Mount Sinai. And uh, the Bible says that he called Moses and the elders halfway up the mountain. And the Bible said that Moses looked up through the cloud and could see the heavenly realm. And God called him up into it. And in that season, over the next 40 days, gave him the tablets of the law. And you, you know this story. Uh, before, you know, before the tablets had cooled off, Israel was violating six of the Ten Commandments. So Moses comes down the mountain. He encounters them. I think we can agree he didn't handle it well. Um, I wouldn't want to be the guy that goes back to God and says, all right, so you know those eternal laws you gave me. I'm going to need another set. But when, when Moses goes up on the mountain, God is furious. And initially, what God says to Moses is, okay, Moses, it's going to be me and you. I'm going to destroy these people. And then Moses advocates for them. He intercedes on behalf of the people of Israel. And God relents and he says, all right, if you want to intercede on behalf of these people, then you can have them. You take them and I'll let you take them into the promised land, but I won't go with you. Because if I went with you, this is a stubborn people and I will surely kill them. That is the most true reflection of the heart of a pastor I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) These are a stubborn people and there's a chance I might kill some of you. So Moses advocates again for the people of Israel and here is what he says. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I might know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember, this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Now, let's just pause right here for a second. Because what we're getting ready to hear from Moses next is a total game changer. What we're getting ready to hear from Moses next is the reason God chose him to begin with. You would think that Moses would say, give me a high five, God. That's great. Let's go. Promised land, here we go. Instead, what he reveals is the promised land never had anything to do with this for him. Here's what he says. Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. What a heart. Moses said to the Lord, in essence, listen, if you're not going, I'm not going anywhere. 
I don't want the promised land. You can have the milk and the honey. What good is it if you aren't there? He says, verse 16, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and, that, and with your people unless you go with us? What else would distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? If you're not with us, we're just another ethnic group in Canaan. Nothing else distinguishes us but your presence. Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Look at how moved the heart of God was that his servant only wanted him. God, you can have the blessings. I want you. What would it look like if in this church our mantra was, I don't care about anything else. I just want you. I don't care about the clock. I want you. I don't care about the offering. I want you. I don't care if it's getting lunchtime. I don't care if I'm tired or I'm I just want you. I'm not going anywhere until I encounter you. And in response to his request, God gives him the blueprint for the tabernacle in the wilderness. This was a tent of meeting. It's a place where God said, not only will I oversee you, I will come and dwell in your midst. Because to this point in biblical history, they didn't know God as omnipresent. God was always in a fixed place at a certain time. This sense of God being everywhere and accessible to everyone is a New Testament thing. Everybody didn't have access to God. You could pray all day long, but you wouldn't encounter God. You weren't allowed. If any of these Israelites had gone up the mountain to meet with God, they would have been smitten dead. In fact, the whole reason he brought them to Sinai was because this is where he had encountered him tending sheep. You remember the story? There was a bush that burns but is not consumed. This was the other side of Mount Sinai, the Midian side. And so when he came off that mountain, he was like, well, this is where God lives. So he goes back to Egypt and he, you remember what he said to Pharaoh, let my people go so they can go into the desert and worship me. You can't worship anywhere you want. You got to go where he is, which is on the mountain. So he leads the people out of bondage and he takes them to the foot of the mountain. And sure enough, God is there. And then as a result of this interaction, God says, I'm ready to change my location. I'm going to come off the mountain and I'm going to dwell in a tent in the middle of my people. And that's what he did. And as long as he was there, they knew his presence was there by a pillar of cloud by day pillar of fire by night. And whenever they would wake up and find that the pillar of smoke had moved, then it was time to move. They would pack up all four or five million of them and follow the cloud. Until it stopped, they would put up the tent and then the kabod of God would settle in the holy of holies between the angels on the mercy seat again. Here is how the book of Leviticus describes the dedication of that tabernacle. 
Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down, the kabod of God settling in the midst of his people. I, uh, this is a moment in time I would love to revisit. Can, can you imagine being a, a priest who goes in to minister in the holy place in the tabernacle? You're trimming the wicks, you're stacking the bread, you're putting the incense, and behind the curtain that separated the holy of holies, bursting out from every side and every seam is unbearable light because the presence of God is right there. Can you imagine? The kabod of God. And this tabernacle now becomes the pattern for every temple that's ever been built to this day, right? There's an outer court, there's an inner court, there's a holy of holies. And this tabernacle sustained them for 40 years in their wilderness wanderings. And then they crossed over the Jordan and uh, they entered the promised land around 1250 BC. And the ark travels around and we lose track of it. We know the ark winds up in the house of Abinadab and people, the, the people of Israel are rather content to live without the presence of God for a season. And then this young kid with a passion for the Lord, becomes king of Israel in the craziest way imaginable. It's just crazy. He was a giant slayer, this little runt of a kid. He becomes king. He's a, he's a, hey, by the way, he's a musician. That's right. That's right. He's a musician. He's a songwriter. And he ministers to the Lord on his instrument. And the day he comes to power, day one, you know what he says? Where is the ark? We need the presence of God back in our midst. And so, you know the story. There were some starts and stops, some fails, but he, set, he sets up the tabernacle in Jerusalem and they bring the ark back and the presence of God once again dwells in the midst of his people in the capital of Israel. And that's just a temporary dwelling because David starts drawing up plans for a permanent tabernacle, the first temple. And his son Solomon builds that temple. It was built in 957 BC. And to this day, the most ornate, expensive structure in the history of the world. Every single part of it overlaid in gold. Uh, it, its cost today would have been in the billions, this magnificent structure. And the Bible records once again the dedication of this temple. This is in Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. And so when Solomon finished praying at the dedication of this temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord Kabod filled the temple. 
And the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the kabod of the Lord filled it. And when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the kabod of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good and his love endures forever. Amazing. What an amazing moment. Once again, the presence of God, the weight of his glory descending in view of all of Israel. Incredible. And what an incredible validation of David's leadership. And what an affirmation that they were still on the right track, that they were serving the Lord, his presence among them. Then 400 years later, in 586 BC, Israel was overrun by Babylon. And among other things, they destroyed the temple, they melted down the gold, they took all of the implements and uh, ransacked the city and what would be billions of dollars in, in gold furnishings and accoutrement. And they took Israel into captivity and made them slaves. Then about 400 years later, Zerubbabel is allowed to come back. You probably remember this from your Sunday school stories. He comes back with a a group of people and a letter of Mark from the king granting him permission to travel back to Israel and asking neighboring kingdoms to give them some help rebuilding the temple. And the Bible said that there was great discouragement as they built this temple because all they could remember was the glory of Solomon's temple and all they had to work with was rubble and wood and stacking stones on top of one another. They built it on the same site. It was the same footprint, but it was just a, just a shadow of the former glory of the temple. It took uh, several years, and then in 39 BC, uh, Herod the king, uh, he decided that if you can't beat them, join them. He was having trouble controlling these rowdy Jews. They were were technically citizens of the Roman kingdom, but no one could control them. And so he had this bright idea. You know, they seem really attached to this temple. Maybe we we come alongside. Maybe we help them out. And so Herod rebuilt Zerubbabel's temple, did a much nicer job. He expanded it quite a bit. He used a lot of really nice furnishings. He used the wealth of Rome to create something that was closer to what Solomon had. And boy, was everyone thrilled. Very exciting. The new temple was completed in 39 BC. There's no biblical record of the dedication of that temple. We don't even know if there was one. If there was, it's not recorded in scripture. But what we do know is that Just about 50 years after it was completed, the Son of God 
walked through those temple gates. He taught in that courtyard. He flipped tables over for them. Then Jesus was falsely accused. He was tried and he was put to death. And Matthew 27 records a fascinating detail about that moment. Here's what it says. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The veil in the temple, which would have been a thick, uh, something like velvet curtain, very tall. We, we don't know exactly how tall, but we're, we think it's something like on the order of 25 or 30 feet tall. The Bible says was torn from the top to the bottom. So it was nothing any man did. It wasn't torn from the bottom. It was ripped in two from the top to the bottom. Now, the generally accepted interpretation of these events goes something like this. The veil was torn, and now everyone has free access to the Holy of Holies. That's how I've always heard that taught. And I suppose it's a valid uh, derivative kind of teaching. But there's something far more chilling buried in this verse. Because when the veil was rent from top to bottom, it became clear to everyone that God wasn't there. It was empty. There was no kabod, and there never had been. For 600 years, they had every day been going through the motions, singing the songs, teaching the word, trimming the wicks, changing the bread, going through all the mechanics of worship, and he was nowhere nearby. And nobody knew. No one noticed that God wasn't a part of it. What an indictment of our religious exercise. Here is the sobering reality. We can get all the mechanics of worship right and never touch God. And let me say something, this is a real danger. This is a real danger because we do church better now than ever in the history of man. Like we know exactly how it goes down. You can pay a membership fee and join one of three or four um, groups and you can download their PowerPoints and their graphics. They'll send you their sermon outlines with their slides professionally designed. We know how to do it. We can get the lights perfect now with LED technology, we can get a perfect cheap. It's really cheap. And, and they'll send you, I won't mention names, but there are churches that you can buy their lighting plots from them and plug them in. And they will sync perfectly with the tracks. 
Oh, we have tracks now. You don't even have to be a real musician. I hope I'm not bursting any bubbles here. Is it okay if I tell secrets? I mean, we use tracks at our church from time to time, but it's, you know. Bridge. And, and what's going through the speakers is the elevation band. And whichever our, of our players can actually play, which fortunately all your players are great players, so you're able to use them all. But I'm just saying, you don't, we, don't have, we don't have to be actually proficient at doing anything. We can pull off a pro-level service. We got the moving lights, and we have the smoke, and we have the lasers, and we have the tracks, and we have everything but the presence of God. When God isn't in the room, you know what we talk about? We fight about aesthetics. Yeah, we fight about pews versus chairs. We fight about the color of the carpet, the temperature in the room, the volume of the music, the music itself. I don't really like this much. I don't know why they do, can't do any hymns. We fight about aesthetics. But can I tell you something? If God were in the room, you wouldn't care what we were singing. You would fall on your face and worship to anything at all. If God was in the room, you don't care what color the walls are or the carpet is. These are fights for a godless congregation. Can I be honest with you? These are fights for a congregation that isn't hosting the presence of God. And I'm not speaking to you specifically. I have no idea what's going on here. I assume this is the healthiest church in all the land. Here's the truth that nobody wants to admit. People are leaving the church now at unprecedented rates. And you know why they're leaving? It's not because they disagree with our doctrine. It isn't because they disagree with our politics. It isn't because they don't like the music. It isn't because the services aren't at a convenient time. It is, it's because... They came and God wasn't here. It's because they come looking for something and so often in church they don't find it because we are so preoccupied with the mechanics of church and worship that we have rarely time to consider the presence of God. And my question is, what does it matter if God's not in the room? We should just pack it up, shut it down. Let's rent this out as storage. We'll make more money. <laughs> and I want to ask you the same question that Moses asked the Lord that day on Mount Sinai. What else would distinguish Graceland from any other people on the earth except the presence of God be in this house. Yes, Lord. God, break our hearts. Make us hungry for you. Make us so hungry that nothing else matters. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And I don't even know what to do here other than
I, I just, this is your church. I want to create some room and some space for just crying out. I want to create some space for repenting of preoccupation with things that don't matter. And an opportunity for us to be filled with fresh affection for the person in the presence of God. So I'm going to ask the worship team to lead. And these altars are open. I don't have anything coordinated in mind. We're just going to be sensitive to the Lord. But I am going to invite you, whether it's at an altar or just standing at the front or kneeling in the aisle or whatever it is for you, I'm going to invite you to cry out tonight for the presence of God to fill this place. And not just once, but for that to become the common experience. That, that, that there would be Sundays when we come in here and, and James starts to lead worship and Nathan never gets to speak because the the weight of the glory of God is so present in the room. You know, you know what it said? It said it, in the dedication of the tabernacle, it was so powerful that the priest couldn't even minister. No one could stand. And I can tell you, because I know this brother's heart, nobody wants that more than Nate. And you're fortunate to have a pastor who this is his heart. So I'm going to ask James to lead us and this worship team to join him. And I'm just going to turn this service over to you. And I'm going to join with you, church, in asking God to do something new and profound in this place, to manifest his presence in a way that's palpable and utterly changing.